From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a pleasure to be back with you, Covenant uh, Church friends, uh, some of you here in person, and those of you at home, and to those uh, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting on previous trips here, it's uh, also a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for that warm welcome and uh, for uh, the introduction to our subject for the day, which is found in the text which uh, Pastor Jonathan read. <clears throat> when, uh, when someone has a single mother with three teenage daughters living next door, it's not hard to figure out when a snake has shown up. And uh, that happened a few years ago. My neighbor, Greta, and her three teenage daughters, I was sitting quietly sipping my morning coffee, cup of coffee on a Saturday morning, and I heard the screams. And by the time I got over there, everything had quieted down, and I said, what happened, Greta? And she said, it was a snake. And I said, was it a good snake or a bad snake? And she said, now it's a good snake. And you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, because the expression is what? The only good snake is a... Dead snake, right. Now, please don't email me about environmentally helpful species and so forth. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm friendly to friendly snakes, but I'm just playing off the, off the, off the meme here that that's, that's often how we feel about snakes. In fact, a lot of people, truth be told, they believe that. The only good snake is a dead snake. Well, here in the story that we find in Numbers chapter 21, you've got snakes, it's not snakes on a plane, unless you count it the plane of the, of the wilderness near Mount Hor. But there are these biting snakes, and then there's this bronze snake on a pole. And next week, we're going to talk about that bronze snake again. But how do you tell a good snake from a bad snake in a story like this? Uh, because the bite, obviously, is not a pleasant thing. And yet, it was the bite that caused God's people to turn toward the Lord. And you know, that's true in life, isn't it? Uh, we, we run into some hardship, some difficulty, and we say, why God? And then we find out why God. Because the bites we experience in life cause us to turn to the Lord. And when we turn to the Lord, what we find, and this is what we'll learn in this text this morning, that we, we, we see that God has provided, graciously provided a sign that we have been freed from the slaveries to which we would gladly be enslaved again, and most specifically, the tyranny of sin itself, that God has provided, graciously provided, a sign of our freedom from sin's tyranny in our lives, so that when we feel the bite, we look to the sign that He has given us, that He has given us, so that we'll turn from unbelief 
to trusting Him again. So let's look at the story and see how God speaks that to us. First of all, I want you to see the complaint. The complaint, this is in verses 4 and 5. And when we look at these verses, we're going to see that duress sentimentalizes slavery. Duress sentimentalizes slavery. And therefore, we have to recognize the amnesia of unbelief involved when duress sentimentalizes slavery. Look at uh, verses 4 and 5. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea. So it's near the 40 years, the end of the 40 years in the wilderness of this this wilderness generation. God had freed them from slavery for 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He had powerfully worked in the plagues and in the parting of the Red Sea and brought his people into the wilderness. Uh, Some of you will know the story. Uh, He brought them to the land he had promised, but they were afraid to go into the land. And so God sent them on a 40-year retreat, if you will, in the wilderness. And now the time is coming for them to enter the land again. But they've been experiencing hardship. And yet, while they've been experiencing the hardship of the wilderness, they've been experiencing the gracious provision of God. They had manna every morning to eat except the seventh day morning, but they had a double portion on the sixth day. So they they had seven meals a week, seven daily meals a week from God. They had water from the rock that he provided, and God had been with them, physically present with them in in the, in the wilderness journeyings, and yet now they're getting ready to enter the promised land again, and they're, ex- they're, 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 they're tired of their difficulties. They're, they're, they've experienced a harassment in the previous context from the people of Arad, and, and, and they're starting to fail in their unbelief again. So they've been delivered, but they've been delayed. Even though God provided for them, they're fatigued, And now they're experiencing hardship, and they become impatient. And it says, they became impatient on the way, in verse 4. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now think about what they're saying there. Slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Their infant children seized and murdered by Pharaoh. Their labor stolen every day. Building cities and buildings to the glory of Pharaoh. Their whole lives were spent for the glory of another king. And their lives were futile. And God had miraculously, powerfully freed them from slavery. And yet they're now asking, after his 40-year faithful presence and provision with them, why he's done this. It's not a, new, not, a, not, a, not a new story here. The chapter after they got out of Egypt, they began this song, this complaint. And the whole wilderness journey, especially for this first generation, was one of complaining to God because life seemed better in Egypt. Think about that. Why have you brought us out here? Uh, we had stew pots in Egypt. We had, we, had, we had something to eat around our fires. It was the stew of slavery. And yet having to depend daily on God's provision of manna was, 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 was too unsettling. When we have to trust God, 
Sometimes we want to turn back to the certainty of slavery. Were there no graves in Egypt that you could have not left us there to die? They say to God at one time. And look at, look at the heart of what's happening here. They're questioning God's purpose for them. God had promised their ancestor Abraham that he would make them into a great and mighty nation and he would give them a great name and he would multiply them and he would give them a a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet the promises of God were not enough when they had to walk by faith, looking forward, not seeing far enough into the future, but only having to trust in the character of God. And yet God's character had been proven time and time again to them, but they're asking why? You see, they're impugning God's character. Why have you brought us out here? By faith, they would have known. So at the heart of what they're doing is unbelief. They don't trust God's purpose. They also don't trust God's power. Uh, We see this not only before this time, but after, that Israel's tendency to trust in other gods shows that they don't think God is quite sufficient in his omnipotence. But not only are they questioning God's character and God's ability. Look at the last part of verse 5. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What food are they talking about? Talking about the manna, which came from heaven. They're talking about heavenly bread that came every day because God was faithfully feeding them from his hand to their mouths. Manna from heaven wasn't enough. Why? Because when they experienced duress, fear made them want to go back to prison instead of going forward by faith. A few years ago, we we live up in Orange County. I'll never forget this. A few years ago, there was a man who did a short sentence at the Orange County Jail for some minor offense. Uh, and he was released after he had served his 60 or 90 days or whatever. And, and when, they, when they went to release him, he said, can I stay? They said, no, you can't stay. You've served your sentence. You have to leave. He said, well, what if I want to stay? They said, you can't stay. So he walked out into the parking lot and he walked around for a little bit and thought about it. And he went back in and he eventually made them arrest him for trespassing. Because he would rather have been back in prison then face the uncertainty of living life on the outside. And perhaps for good reason. Perhaps he was homeless. Perhaps he had no money, no prospects, no family, no friends. Perhaps his life was hopeless outside of the Orange County Jail. And the only security he could find was to go back to jail. That's not true for us. God, in his Rich mercy has provided for us freedom from slavery. We are no longer slaves, but sons, the New Testament tells us, because God in Jesus Christ has freed us from sin and paid the penalty of our sins by dying on the cross and, 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 and broken the power of the devil so that we're free from sin's tyranny. So whenever we face duress in life, it's because we have amnesia about what God has done. Or if if you are someone who has never rested and relied upon Christ alone, perhaps it's something you've never known before. 
You see, the invitation here is to stop forgetting. Or to know for the first time that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ has liberated us from slavery and made us sons and daughters of the living God in Him. So that's, that's the complaint here. That duress, when we encounter trials in life and we're tempted to forget how God has acted in order to liberate us and provide for us and to be our God, we have to have an amnesia cure. The second thing I'd like us to see in this text is the confession. The confession. And when we look at the confession, we're going to see that God's grace afflicts us in our amnesia. That God's grace afflicts us in our amnesia. And so we have to get the gain of the pain. You know what I'm talking about. The expression, no gain, no pain, no gain. Well, we need to get the gain of the pain when God afflicts us in his grace. Look at verses 6 through 7 with me. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Now, there are two or three candidates of species of what snake this might have been, but these snakes are clearly working for God. God sent them. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. These serpents were reminders of Egypt. Why do I say that? Well, when you think of snakes in the Bible, the first thing you might think of is the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, and surely our minds must ultimately go back there. But Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, uh, had a snake on his uh, crown, uh, a snake on his staff. Uh, One of the great gods of the Egyptian pantheon was the crocodilian serpent-like god that was associated with the Nile River. And so these fiery serpents, if you're thinking about these people who had been liberated from Egypt, now set free into the wilderness, they would have thought back to the serpent reminding them of Pharaoh and the sting of slavery. And Pharaoh himself is an emblem, if you will, of the seed of the serpent, Satan himself. But for these Israelites, they would have been reminded when they were back in Egyptian slavery, it hurt. It hurt every day. It hurt all day. And in their amnesia, as they had begun to think that maybe life would have been better back in Egyptian slavery, they receive a bite of a reminder. This bite is fatal for some. And it was excruciating for those who didn't die. And they recognize what they've done from the sting. They're eyes are open. There's clarity which comes to them, which causes them to turn to the one against whom they had complained, the one momentarily before they had failed to trust. And they realized, we had not trusted you, Lord, and we had not trusted your servant Moses, who has led us all these 40 years. Notice what they do. They don't just say, God, please help us. They say, Moses, please pray for us. They understood that God had put Moses between him and them to be an intercessor, a provider, a mediator, what we call in theological terms. And so they're recognizing the snake bites are from God and for God to turn them back toward God. 
They make gain from the pain. Just a couple years ago, a very sad story, a six-year-old Lake County boy was bitten by a rabid bat, and he wouldn't tell his parents what had happened. They saw a scratch on his finger, and he said it was just a scratch, and eventually he died of rabies. By the time they figured out what had happened and how serious it was, he was beyond treatment. And when I read the news of this, what was even sadder about it was the boy wouldn't tell his parents because he was afraid of rabies shots. You see, he, he, he had heard about the series of injections you have to get to uh, be cured of rabies if you've been exposed. And the thought was so painful, so he was so averse to it that he wouldn't come clean about what had happened. And that's not what the Israelites do here, but it's sometimes what we do. Cures are often painful, but the thing about cures is they're not permanent. Death is permanent. Slavery is permanent unless there was a powerful solution. Pain tells us something is wrong. Perhaps you've heard the story. If you have leprosy that deprives your hands of nerve sensation, you can easily scald yourself or burn yourself without even knowing it. If you've ever awakened from surgery, initially you're in the fog, but the more awake you are, what? The more pain you feel. Pain is a sign of health in the right situation. And that's such a situation here. So Let's, 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 let's make use of this. Let's benefit from this. Pain is a sign of life. And this kind of pain is a high dosage of God's grace. Would you rather have God leave you alone and let you go back to Egypt? Or when you encounter the sting of your actions, your attitudes, the things you trust in beside him, besides him, do you want him to leave you pain-free? Or do you want him to be a good father who disciplines his children, who inflicts the pain of grace and the grace of pain? Because faith reminds us that God, as the psalmist said, God is good and he does good. And so the grace of God's pain is from a good God who treats us such as the psalmist David remembered, looking back upon a horrible thing that he had done. He said, God, let the bones which you have broken, what? Rejoice. God is gracious sometimes to abandon us to our sin for a time so that in our misery we turn back to him. Remember the prodigal son, he was eating pea pods with the pigs when he came to his senses. And it was the swill of the sty that brought the son to his senses. And it was the signet that answered his sorrow. I'm going to say that again. The swill in the sty brought him to his senses, and the signet answered his sorrow. God didn't send his signet to the pigsty, but he left the prodigal son in the swill. 
and the sty to awaken him. We need to pray that God would give us tender consciences so that we make right use of our stings. Instead of saying, why God? We say, why God? Teach me. You've made my heart tender through the mistakes I've made, through the rubble of relationships. I realize that the people who cause me pain in my life, it's not all their fault. I have a part in it. God, awaken me to free me from the slavery to my desires, the slavery to the past that makes me powerless to change and to change the way I relate to others so that we can make gain from the pain. So the complaint duress sentimentalizes slavery to sin and we have to recognize the amnesia that goes along with unbelief. But the confession is that God's grace afflicts us in our amnesia and we must get the gain to the pain. The last thing I want us to look at is the cure that God provides. In this cure, God provides an efficient object of faith to which he invites us to look for his cure. God provides an efficient object of faith so that we might look to it for the cure. Look at verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, this is a little bit challenging for a lot of Bible interpreters. First of all, bronze, the reddish color of bronze, would associate uh, the Israelites' minds with the fiery serpents that had been biting them. But what does a serpent symbolize? Uh, Some have suggested that it's a symbol of healing, a universal symbol of medicine, such as the rod of Asclepius, uh, the Greek the uh, God of Kos, where Hippocrates, the father of all medical treatments, he began his healing. In, in other words, this serpent must be a medical symbol, like on our modern day uh, doctors and, and, and nursing facilities. And it is true that that modern day symbol we see on hospitals and things does come from the rod of Asclepius. But the Israelites near Mount Hor don't know anything about Asclepius. What they do know is there was a serpent in their past who no longer breathed and walked this earth. The serpent on the pole here is a symbol of Pharaoh. Now, you might be wondering, why would God have his people look to a symbol of Pharaoh? Well, think about how that symbol is presented to them. And I know you won't do it now, but after worship is over, just, just Google St. Augustine Eastern Diamondback Rattlesnake, and you'll see exactly what I mean. Uh, a few years ago, somebody walked out of their condo near the St. Augustine factory outlet malls and found what was reported initially to be a 25-foot Eastern Diamondback Rattlesnake outside their door. It only looked 25 feet. I think it ended up being seven and a half. Big enough, okay? Just big enough. And um, a trapper was called 
before the trapper could safely capture the snake and set it free in a happy snake farm somewhere uh, with frozen mice served three times daily, a sheriff's deputy had arrived. And fast forward probably about 12 seconds, and you see, and you'll see the photo, you'll see a, a sheriff's deputy holding a catch pole which is clamped around this very large rattlesnake's neck. And the snake is so big that the pole is actually arcing, bending under the weight. And it's very obvious from that photo, this is no longer a living snake. God put a symbol of dead Pharaoh on a pole. Like ancient enemies would put the heads of their enemies on a pole. This is Pharaoh on a pike. How would that have helped the Israelites? It would have reminded them that the place they wanted to go back to and the king who had once enslaved them, he was at the bottom of the Red Sea with all his chariots, all his horsemen, and all his soldiers. In other words, to turn from the living God back to Egypt would have been to turn back to a dead God, and that God was dead. And the one who had traveled with them in the wilderness, who had provided for them, who had protected them, who had provided a mediator, he was a living God who was there with them, listening, hearing, acting, fulfilling his promises to them. Now, you'll know, some of you Bible students will know, that three times in John's gospel, Jesus refers to this serpent. And three times he refers to the Son of Man being lifted up, just as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. And you might be confused if you're thinking about that. You might be thinking, well, how can a symbol of dead Pharaoh become a symbol for Jesus? Well, where did Jesus go when he was lifted up? He was lifted up on the cross. In fact, the last time Jesus refers to this serpent in John's gospel, it's in John chapter 12. He says, now must the Son of Man be glorified. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then he says, and now will the ruler of this world be cast down. Jesus directly connected, causally connected, his crucifixion with the overthrow of the prince of the power of the air, of the ruler of this world. Because Jesus would destroy him by going to death himself. Jesus went into the grave to blow up death. What God did in Jesus Christ was to stand before the devil, the one whose dominion has brought such heartache, such sorrow to this world, to stand before him and say, do your worst. And through that, through the devil's worst, God would do his best. Because in Jesus Christ, God overthrew the powers of this world. Colossians 2.15 says, not only did Jesus defeat the devil, he put him to shame. He ran up the score. He embarrassed him. What difference does this make for us? 
when we want to turn back to the things which we formerly served, or when we feel the grip of sin or the grip of things we love more than God enslaving us so that we behave certain ways, so that we live certain ways, so we feel the guilt, so we feel the powerlessness, we lose hope. Here's what God says, because Jesus was raised up on the cross, it's a reminder to us, it's a testimony to us that sin shall not have any dominion over us because we have died in Christ and we have been raised with him. So that when sin begins to enslave us, we have a better word. Because sin no longer has any claims over us. Christ paid our debt and Christ broke the power of sin. So when we look to Christ in faith, we're not tempted, we're not drawn back to the stew pots of slavery. We're drawn forward into God's promises. So the complaint, duress makes us forgetful because of unbelief, but God in His grace afflicts us in our amnesia so that we can gain from the pain which He graciously inflicts upon us. And more than that, God provides a place to look, an object of faith, not Moses, but a better mediator, Jesus Christ who is God himself. Most of you have probably heard of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Perhaps his second most well-known book is The Holy War. And it's a story of a city called Mansoul. And it's, uh, it begins with the citizens of Mansoul letting these Diabolonians into their city. And eventually the Diabolonians take over. But the prince of the city comes and makes war against the Diabolonians and drives them out and takes over the city. But there are still some Diabolonians that are allowed to live within the city. And toward the end of the holy war, the people of the city ask their prince, why do you let, why do you let Diabolonians still live here? You know, that's a question we ask God too, don't we? God, why can't I still do the worst things? Why, God, do I still feel the power of sin? Why, God, do I still experience the fallenness of this world? Well, here's the prince's answer. He said, do you know why I at first and still allow Diabolonians to dwell in your walls, O soul? It is to keep you awakening, to try your love, to make you watchful, and to cause you to prize my noble captains, their soldiers, and my mercy. It is also that yet you may be made to remember the deplorable condition you once were in. Know therefore that whatever they shall tempt you to do, my design is that they should drive you not further off, but nearer to my Father. You see, we have a Father in heaven who is so gracious that He will even use all things, famine, peril, persecution, sword, hardship, the things that Paul names in Romans chapter 8 to bring us closer to Him. 
May you find God's grace in the pain. And may you look to the one who was lifted up as proof that the gods which we would serve are dead gods. But there is only one God who lives in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, help us to look at the pain in our lives and ask, why God? Teach me. Help me to learn. Help us to look to Christ as proof positive that sin no longer has any claims over us and no power to exercise over us so that we might be driven not farther from you, but closer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.